Welcome to the CDC Podcast. I am your host, Eric Swain, and I'm here today with one Brendan Keogh of VRKO.com, a PhD candidate at RMIT and all-around video game critic. He is probably most well-known for his 2012 critical book, Killing is Harmless, a critical asset. What was it? Damn it. Critical reading, I think. <laughs> a critical reading of Spec Ops The Line. And it's kind of sad because I actually have the book open in front of me, but... Hi, I can say hello. Yes, yes, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, before we actually get into the book, I was wondering if you could sort of introduce yourself and your critical background and sort of give us an idea of where you were coming from when, before, the, before the book came about. Yeah, well, I come from, I have a pretty like traditional humanities kind of education. I did an arts degree in my undergrad. Um, well, I spent 18 months trying to do IT and multimedia because I thought I wanted to make games. Um, but I gave up on that pretty quickly and when I realized how miserable I was at it. Then I just did arts degree. I did a major in writing, of all things, because that was going to get me a job. And then at the end of my undergrad, I decided I wanted to do honors and just kind of keep doing academic stuff. So I went back and did some more undergrad cultural studies subjects, um, a bunch of film studies and media studies and all that kind of stuff, in the hope of eventually going into an honors thesis where I could write about video games. So that was like late 2000s, I guess. And while I was doing that, so I was doing all these film study subjects where you'd spend like an entire two-hour lecture talking about a single film or a single franchise or something. I can distinctly remember while doing that being like, you know, should be able to do this with a video game. Like, should be able to talk about a video game, a single video game in this much depth and talk about, and talk about, say things about the medium through that individual game. I probably wasn't able to say it in as many words back then, though. So essentially, I come from a very, I guess, traditional yeah, critical cultural studies, film studies background, and just kind of going this but with video games. And that's kind of been, all, all my blogging and all my academic work has really been essentially doing that. How can I treat video games as seriously but not, you know, reductively in the same way we can with film and literature and pop music and all of those kind of things? And that really led to the book, I guess. Yeah, but what about your nor- like like how your development of st- your style throughout your I guess normal blogging critical career? Right. And you seem very popular of the numbered notations form of criticism. I am now. So like, I guess this is jumping ahead a little bit. But since releasing Killing Is Harmless, I like I read a whole lot of Susan Sontag's essays from like the sixties and seventies, and she does that numbered thing really well. Like obviously like Notes on Camp and Foe's essays where he just kind of uses dot points or numbered points, where numbers don't really matter, just to kind of get out all these different ideas without necessarily having the, having paragraphs to link in any way. So now, so now I do a lot of notes post as a kind of a wrap-up on a game to kind of go, here are my thoughts on this game without having to somehow cohere all those thoughts into one single thing. So I do that now, but back then my writing, like all my old blog posts back to like, 2008, you can still find on Critical Damage, my old blog, and most of them are pretty terrible. Definitely a lot of, I guess, New Games journalism inspired there. Like, a lot of my early stuff was very, probably leaning too far to the personal side, I guess, like talking about myself more than talking about the actual game. And I don't regret writing that stuff, but it was very much a... It took me a while to kind of find that middle ground. So, yeah, coming from a very first-person perspective, a very kind of subjective perspective, not trying to be objective, very much not wanting to write about games as just computer software or, you know, so much early games writing early, like, I don't know, 2000s or the 90s or whatever. You know, it's like they're writing about a refrigerator, not a creative work, like these numbers of polygons or whatever. 
so I, I very much shied away from that. What else was I inspired by? I was, I was definitely inspired by like Edge magazine's reviews back in the early days. I read a lot of Edge. I mean, it had this great review style where, you know, they'd do the kind of typical stuff you had to have in a review, but they would also kind of bring it all together under a single kind of theme or like, you know, this game does this thing and here's all the ways it does this thing. Like these really great reviews. So that was pretty influential in my writing as well. So that's probably the two things, Edge reviews and New Games journalism, if I had to boil it down. <laughs> And it actually it actually shows in the book that you uh, you chose to go through you called uh, the game a journey and you decided to go step by step along that journey. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much like a written version of a let's play video almost. Like I'm just kind of narrating my way through the game and going, "Hey, this thing's kind of cool." And I guess the reason I did that was it was probably the first game I played where there wasn't just some interesting bits about it. Like rather the way it kind of built over time and kind of continued to grow on itself I guess like it had this real kind of sense of a narrative arc and just kind of growing and not many games I've played have ever really given me that feeling so I wanted to kind of write that moment to moment style so I could really express that and show how the game was building on itself and like returning to different motifs 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 whatever motifs motifs and you know just the way it was referring back to itself a lot and the way it kind of developed so I feel like writing it out like that really helped me kind of express that hopefully without getting too self-indulgent talking about my emotions or whatever. <laughs> Why Spec Ops specifically? What was specifically about that game that drove this need to... Well, I guess in this question is another question. Was the book the original idea, or did you just start writing, and then suddenly you realized, I have too many words for a blog post, this could be a book? Pretty much exactly that. I started writing, and I had a lot of words. I realized I was just writing my way through the game, and realized it was probably going to end up being a book after I'd already written probably like 10,000 words or something. It took me a while to decide what exactly I was doing. But like, yeah, it was, you know, I didn't decide I'm going to write a book. Now what game am I going to write about? It was very much, I played Spec Ops and what I wanted to write about Spec Ops was going to take a book-like project. So the game came first. And it it was Spec Ops because, again, it had that really satisfying feeling of a narrative arc, like a real kind of start-middle-end to it. No game I played before that really gave me, like, in this really kind of nice, confined, what, five hours long or whatever. It starts, it progresses, and it ends. It doesn't just kind of drift off in the hope for the eventual sequel or, you know, so many games have, very few AAA games have decent, just good endings. And, I don't know, just just from start to finish, I just really enjoyed how Killing is Harmless works. Jesus. I, how Spec Ops works. That's awkward. And I just wanted to explore that. I'm like, why did this work so well for me? And that's really all it was, was just pointing to the things that worked. What was the kernel behind, like, the main idea behind the book? It wasn't just the journey, because having gone through it, you keep coming back to the certain point of the descent and this idea. And then you, you point out things that obviously you couldn't see in the first time, because, like, the stop sign at the very beginning of, yeah. like, the first cut scene when you first entered Dubai, and it's like, whoa, really, that was there? Yeah. I don't remember that from my playthrough, so obviously... You started writing, you played through this several times to get as many details as possible, and you you obviously had to change things to cement around this idea that you felt the game was about. Yeah, there's a weird te- there's a weird temporal thing happening in the book, I think, where, like, if it was like a let's play, it would just be the one playthrough and that kind of first reaction thing. But there was very much like, and I kind of, like, jumped back and forth in the book between, you know, initial reactions and then, you know talking about playing it for my third time and seeing things in different in a different light. So 
it jumps back and forward in a way, which I think was, um, I don't know, I feel like usually you would want to try to avoid, especially for that kind of narrative style I did, but I'm glad I did it. It kind of allowed me to kind of, you know, talk about both those first reactions and unpacking deeper stuff. So it was the journey, but yeah, it was also, there were just so many little moments and little details throughout the game. It felt like there was this really great care had been put into making it, into into kind of perpetuating the thing it wanted to say, whatever that was, through all those little details like the stop sign or, man, it's been so long. What's the bad dude's name? Conrad. Yeah, uh, it's been a while. Um, I played that game so many times, I haven't played it for a while now. But yeah, like the pictures of Conrad right at the start of the game, you don't recognize at first. And, um, you know, reflections of people that don't exist and stuff like that. Like there's all these tiny little moment-to-moment details, like not just broad strokes. And again, and, and no one of those little detail, details explaining in and of itself would have been that interesting, but by situating it in the broader context of the rest of the game, I was, you know, I guess trying to kind of point out why that little thing was really interesting. I'm just looking through your book right now, and it says, I, I, I totally forgot you to put this, like right before the uh, table of contents, you have this uh, quote from Dear Esther. Yeah. As sort of a setting the tone, if I can just read it out here. Yeah. At night, you see the light sometimes from the passing tanker or trawler. From up on the cliffs, they are mundane, but down here, they fugue into ambiguity. For instance, I cannot readily tell if they belong above or below the waves. The distinction now seems mundane. Why not everything all at once? There is nothing better to do here than indulge in contradictions whilst waiting for the fabric of life to unravel. I really like that quote. I kind of totally forgot about it until... I, saw, I don't know, I think I saw it in my notes or something for Killing a Timeless. I was going through them for some reason. And I kind of remembered how much I liked that quote. It seemed to just fit really well with Spec Ops in a lot of ways. Like, I think a lot of people kind of got angry at that game because it didn't give clear answers. Or that they were looking for a clear answer. And the clear answer they thought they found was a very straightforward one. Um, whereas I just thought it was much more interesting because it is such a contradictory text. Like, it says one thing, but it is another thing. Like... You know, it's a military shooter that tries to tell you that military shooters are terrible. Like, it's this game that's kind of at war with itself, for lack of a better metaphor. And it, you know, it hates itself. Um, and it actually does hate itself. Like, I remember talking to Walt Williams uh, at GDC, and then I was talking to the developers at Jaeger when I was in Berlin earlier this year. And like, nobody making this game was really enjoying making it. Just 2K or whoever just really wanted a military shooter, and these people were forced to make it, and they're just doing it, and they're just like. I hate this game and I hate the people who want to play this game. So let's just throw that hatred in there. And and I think it's just an interesting game. Like this game shouldn't exist. Like it was never going to make money and it didn't make money and like lost money. But it's just like this super weird, spiteful, hateful game that is a totally contradictory thing. And, and that in itself, I think is exciting because we so rarely are able to see that in triple in the triple A space where everything plays it so safe and is so inoffensive all the time. So I think that's really one of the main reasons. Like, I didn't think it was like overly deep in the way that it said maybe killing people is bad or whatever. I just thought it, its contradictions were just fascinating to me. The presentation that elevated it. Yeah, totally. And I guess that's kind of in the name of my book as well, really. It's just like that focus on the contradictions of the game. Though there's another thing as well, if you, might, if you don't mind, like with that quote. When I first started like getting excited about that quote, I realized like from Dear Esther, I mean, I realized it was like kind of a useful quote for thinking about how we talk about video games experientially, because, you know, especially when we think about things like immersion or whatever, where often when we talk about 
our experience playing a game. We kind of want to just talk about the virtual experience of playing a game. And we often try to, you know, silence or not talk about the actual act of playing a video game, of sitting in a seat in front of a monitor or a television screen. We just think about us as the character. Um, so I like that ambiguity, that all at once idea and that de-rest of things, like not knowing what's above and what's below the waves, what's immersed and what's kind of above the ocean. It's kind of a useful way of how I want to write about games as well in like, you know, everything all at once, not trying to distinguish between what's happening in the game and what's happening at the game and instead just mashing it all together, which is something I tried doing in the book as well, like not really differentiating between myself and Walker or pressing a button on the controller and walking or whatever, just mashing it all together. That's, so that's the other reason I thought that quote was quite relevant for the book. In looking at other people's criticisms of Spec Ops, yep. it seems there to have a vast differences in their readings between like the person who does like a single like com- comprehensive essay or even a, a, like a single item focused about, about that essay and their ultimate reading of the game versus yours because the smaller essays seem to have like a much more straightforward answer of the game while your amount of depth seems to create this much more complicated, layered, and ultimately more interesting idea of what the work is. Yeah, like, I th- and I think that's part of the reason I ended up writing the book was because I-, I think when I wanted to say what the game was about, I realized I couldn't do that in a short essay without reducing it to one thing or another, which doesn't really work for the game, I don't think. I think plenty of those shorter essays were really good, even the ones that, like, completely disagree with my take on the game, I think. You know, all of, I, I guess I don't even think all, any of them are wrong, really. I guess they're all right because the game is so contradictory. But yeah, I think a lot of people saw it as a lot more straightforward than I did, which I can't really blame anyone for since it's very easy to be quite sceptical and cynical of any kind of AAA game's attempt to go deeper or whatever. Of course, often it's usually just this really surface-level engagement with themes while pretending to be a really deep, meaningful text, kind of like, you know, Bioshock Infinite dealing with racism or whatever. So, like, it just seems at the same time that seems to it kind of rubbed off on the criticism itself. The criticism itself seems to be reduced down to, oh, this is a game that's deep because it says you should feel bad for playing it, and then it sort of ends there. Yeah, yeah, and like, and I kind of get some of the criticisms, and I guess it, you know, there are people who, you know, different people go into video games wanting different things, and a lot of people want to be, you know, in control. They don't like being mocked by the game like you know i'm a player i'm in charge you should respect me whatever and i totally get that and i think that was like ben abraham's main issue with the game that the game didn't respect him that it'd be like hey you should do this thing and then he does it and he's like and it's like haha you did that thing sucker like you know that's kind of how ben saw the game like it was just kind of telling him to do something then mocking him for doing it and i'm like well i don't know i guess that doesn't bother me so much maybe i'm just a bit Masochistic in my game playing or something, and I don't mind a game mocking me or being the butt of a game's jokes or whatever. But yeah, I don't know. It, it's, a, it's a really difficult one because so many people had so many different things to say about it. I guess if you read the game as ultimately saying military shooters are bad, then yeah, you're not going to think it's a particularly insightful game because it's trying to have its cake and eat it too. But yeah, but I don't think it is saying military shooters are bad. I just think that's a re- I don't think it's that straightforward. I think it's more, we enjoy something that's pretty messed up, but we enjoy it. Like that's, I think, I feel like that's what it's saying. So like, if you're somebody who already really dislikes, say Call of Duty or any kind of game where you shoot a whole lot of men, 
you know, if you already don't like those games, there's probably nothing new you're going to get out of Spec Ops. But I guess I was probably just primed in a prime position to really consume it since I'm somebody who kind of quite enjoys like the modern warfare games and a whole bunch of AAA action games, but also feel kind of quite critical about them at the same time. So like then this game came along, which kind of combined all of that in one package. So it was probably the perfect game to like exploit my insecurities about the kinds of video games I enjoy playing. I have here op- the two reviews of your book that, uh, when it, when it came out, yep. uh, Darius Kazimi's and Cameron Kunzelman's yep. reviews of your book, and both seem to be on the on the idea that you at certain points read too much into yep. certain details of the work yep. within your book. Yeah, like I think I was changed a lot as a writer since I wrote Killing Is Harmless, and I think I probably agree quite a lot with both of those reviews now. Like when I was writing it, like I, I wouldn't pretend that I knew what I was doing. I just kind of wrote a whole bunch of words, and then I'm like, well, this is a bit of a prototype experiment to see if this kind of analysis even works. Like, I never I never wanted to claim that it was the final word of a game or the most correct word or even the best way to write about games. It's like, let's see how this goes and see what people think. Um, so I was really quite... I really appreciated their, you know, candid kind of, you know, review of it and saying what they didn't enjoy about it. And I think they're really valid. So I think I maybe did go too far down the textual route. Like the, I think I was too interpretive, like going, oh, here's this thing, that must represent this thing. And even though I kind of always try to caveat, look, I'm not saying this is unequivocally this. I was always like, this kind of made me think of this. It was quite a lot of projecting onto the game happening there, I think, in hindsight. So since then, I've read, as I mentioned, I've read a lot of Susan Sontag, and she has these essays against interpretation and on style, which he wrote in the mid-60s. And they both kind of kind of argue against this idea that any kind of artwork, like the idea of having an artwork and going, oh, that colour represents angriness or angst and that symbol represents this, therefore this is about this. And she's, much, she's really kind of opposed to metaphor and all that. She's just like, this thing is this thing. This artwork is this artwork, nothing else. And it's a much more, instead of talking about the content of the artwork, it's talking about the form of the artwork and seeing the content as kind of emergent from the form. And that's really kind of influenced how I analyse games since I wrote Killing is Harmless. So nowadays I'm probably much more looking at, I probably would start with how the hell did this game come to exist? Like, how is it possible that 2K allowed this game to exist? And, And the fact that Walt Williams and that were really quite frustrated while making the game so that's probably, so I'd probably approach it very differently now. I'd probably start with, why is this game like this? What were the real reasons that made this? And then go from there and then look at the game's content, for lack of a better word, from that perspective. Whereas how it is currently, I kind of start with the content and go, oh, this thing probably means this thing, without thinking about the real-world reasons why the creators of the game ended up making it like that. Which isn't to say, sorry, this is a long-winded answer, but this isn't to say that I'm like all for artistic and you know, authorial intent, or like that the author's always right or anything. But, but, I was about to get in there. Yeah, right but, but there is kind of like a middle ground there, right, where like authorial intent does matter to an extent. And this is also because I read Noel Carroll's book on criticism, which is all about arts criticism. And he kind of makes the point, these aren't his words, but it's the kind of a point I got from him, is like, if you go into a movie and say it's a horror film, like say you don't know anything about this film and you go in to watch it, certain things about the film are going to tell you this is a horror film. Like, 
the lighting of a mood of a font used for the title. And that, in a way, like reading those genre conventions is partly reading into the author's intent, which was to make a horror film and positioning yourself in such a way to consume a horror film. You know, the way you don't expect a spaceship to appear in Lord of the Rings because you've kind of played into this conceit that they were making a fantasy movie, book, whatever medium you're consuming that in. So, so I think there's a middle ground there, and I think I didn't appreciate that you could find a middle ground back when I wrote Killing is Harmless, just sitting in my study in my home in Australia without bothering to talk to anybody who made the game. And now I think it is important to t- speak to the people who made the game or at least think about them a little bit and kind of find some kind of weird middle of that muddle of criticism. Um, so the, <laughs> I guess to boil that all down, <laughs> I, think, I think Darius and Cameron made a lot of really valid points on that regard and i'm really looking forward to reading darius's book on jagged alliance too which um i have the ebook of but i'm waiting for a print version so i can actually highlight it and scribble all over it and i think he'll probably provide a really interesting counter methodology to how i wrote about it sorry that was a lot of stuff (laughs) no no it was actually wonderful and i i inhaled to say my question and then the question died in my brain as soon as i did that yeah because yeah, but that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, as a person who only recently, like I think like two months ago, finally got around to playing Spec Ops The Line and then immediately afterward read your book, I didn't see any of those necessary faulty interpretations. I couldn't, or at least I couldn't identify any of them as I was getting through it. All of it made sense to me. All of it was content that sort of matched and explained some of the difficulties that I had while within the actual game. Yeah. Because... You don't always notice these when you're struggling to get through the tenth wave of bad guys for the tenth freaking time. Yeah. But reading the analysis and the interpretations, it somehow I, I didn't see any of these points where you seem to reach too far because all of it was content in the game. It is something that the player would experience because on the other hand, authorial t- intent is saying you have to know about the author to truly understand the work. And there, and that is to a degree, but on the other hand, it is the player, the person, the audience that matters. If something fell in accidentally, it is still part of the work. It is still part of the cohesive whole on the end result. Yeah, totally. And on that note, that's really interesting. Like when I was speaking to the guys at Jaeger, when I was in Berlin, I was just there backpacking and having to have a beer with them. And they were talking about about kind of joking, talking about how like a whole lot of the things I've pointed out in the game they themselves hadn't really considered as potentially in any way meaningful or contributing to it. I think I was speaking to one guy, I forget his name now, but like he mentioned that like he put the stop sign in at the start and he didn't even think about, you know, the thematic resonance of that stop sign. But like at the same time, he wasn't like, oh, you're wrong. He was just like, that's really interesting that it was able to be read that way. We didn't even think about that when we put it there. But yeah, but it still had, it certainly still had a resonance for me that especially on my second playthrough that there was a stop sign right at the beginning and you're right, it doesn't matter whether they put it there with intent or not. But I think as, so yeah, so as a book that was trying to go, this is what it was like to play this game, yeah, the euphorial intent is less important. But as a, I guess, I don't know, mature, sophisticated piece of criticism about this creative work that exists in the world, it probably could have done a bit more legwork to, um, you know, understand why it is the way it is as well as how the player is interpreting it regardless of that. I don't know, it probably could have just taken a couple of steps closer to the other side without necessarily avoiding the side it is on or something. 
on that stop sign thing, is that there is also a, a matter of where intent could remove subtlety, because if they had realized, oh, we put a stop sign here at the beginning, that could be something thematic. The camera's not just going to glaze over it. It's going to be there right in your... It could just end up being right there, right in your face. Yeah, totally. Making its meaning apparent and losing the subtle impact yeah. that it would have on their mind. Also, you say that where you had to, it might have helped if you had talked to the people who made the game, but wouldn't you say that this, writing this book and gaining the attention and, frankly, the notoriety of doing something that no one had done really with video games before in any visible way, that that opened the door to talk to the developers? Yeah, absolutely. Like, quite simply, yes. Like, it pretty, like, it pretty much would have been impossible to do this, to talk to the developers before I wrote the book. Like, you know it would have not been something I would have been able to do. Like, it's how I have gotten in contact with Walt Williams, a writer, and why the people at 2K know I, sorry, at Jaeger know I exist. Um, back when I was writing it, I did email 2K, the um, their people here in Australia, just to ask about using screenshots and stuff. I never heard back from them. And then, of course, the, the book came out. I was just like, screw it, I'll do it. Um, then the book came out, and suddenly they emailed me and going, oh, hey, heard about the book. Um, oh no, sorry, this isn't when it came out. This is after I started getting some press that it was coming out soon. And this guy who hadn't bothered to reply at all replies like, hey, let me know if we can do anything to help. And it's like, you know, now you want to help, but it's actually going to be a thing. But um, before that, he's just like, I don't know what you, who you are. So yeah, there definitely is that catch-22. And like, I guess when I think about this, it's probably more moving forward. If I was to write another book or something one day, I would probably think in, keep in mind now who I would like to speak to and stuff. Yeah, and, I, and I, I don't think it's that you have to speak to developers before you write about the game. Like, absolutely not. And I still rarely ever do. But yeah, I've certainly become aware that there were insights I maybe could have made if I had reached out to people. But we, I don't know. I, I think that's kind of not done in games criticism yet, mostly because, you know, especially with AAA games, so much nobody's actually allowed to talk about anything. Like, everybody's got non-disclosure agreements or whatever. And all the publishers are so cagey about you know, knowledge leaking out and other people finding out about it. So, so it's almost impossible to do that. Though in the indie scene, you can a bit. And there's all kinds of weird little indie games that only make sense in the context of who the author is and what other games have made. And, you know, a lot of the kind of stuff that, like, places like the Arcade Review and that of writing kind of demonstrates that really well. So, yeah, I, I guess I don't regret writing Killing Summers how I did write it, but, yeah. If I was doing it again now, if I was writing a second book about Spec Ops Line, which would be a really funny thing to do, I think it would be a very different book. But you did actually have other people look over the book after you'd finished writing it. I remember you putting out a call on Twitter, who has time to read 50,000 words? <laughs> um, yeah, so, a few people were like, oh, sorry, did you have a question? I was just going to ramble about it. No, no, go on and ramble. Your rambling is quite entertaining. Who did I get to read it? I got Dan Golding, obviously here in Melbourne, a friend and fellow game critic, I sent him a copy and I'm like, I don't know what this is. Can you read it and tell me if there's anything here or if it's just, you know, rubbish. And a couple of other friends here, like Mark Johnson, I've lost his last name. He used to write at like Game Taco, his old blog place. He did it and did some copy editing for me. Um, but Dan read it and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. With this. I'll probably just like put a Word document online with like, you know, a PayPal donate button next to it or something. But it was Dan who convinced me that, you know, this was something, you know, important for games criticism, I guess, insofar as it was the first time somebody's really tried to write a whole book about a single game. And I, and I still get very 
hesitant to say that because I'm sure somebody's done it before and somebody just hasn't told me yet. Um, but anyway, but he's like, look, you kind of have a, Dan was like, you have a responsibility to do this properly. Like if you're going to put it out there, you need to put it out there as a proper book because, you know, you need to set that standard so that other, if other people can do it, do it, they do it well as well. It shouldn't just be like some 50,000 word forum post about Nico or something. So after I spoke to Dan about that and he convinced me that I should make this into a real book and not just dump some massive essay on the internet, that's when I went and spoke to like Dan Purvis, you know, the artist and designer who has done a whole lot of design for like Kill Screen and Hyper and stuff and started talking about how we might actually make it into an ebook. But yeah. So yeah, so I got people to read it just to tell me I wasn't mad and that there was, that I hadn't just written 500 words of interesting stuff across 50,000 words. Because that was probably my biggest fear was that I was saying absolutely nothing at all. I had that noted that I'm not don't want to say emphatically that you were the first, but as far as I can tell, you were the first to do it on a single game. There have been books before yours, yeah, but they were more on ideas or theory or multiple games around a single idea. Yeah, yours is the first, I believe, to create critique a book. I haven't found one. No one's been able to point one out. Yeah, and a lot of them are video games. Like, let's talk about video games in general, how great video games are. So, mm-hmm. One that gets close, sorry, is David Sudno wrote in 1983 a book called Pilgrim in the Microworld. And it's out of print now, but if you Google it, you can find a PDF pretty easily. And it's this really, really, really incredible piece of, um, it's essentially new games journalism or games criticism written back like three years before I was born in the early 80s. And he's never played a video game before. And in the first chapter, he sits down and plays Missile Command at a friend's house and is like, holy crap, this is amazing. And he buys an Atari with um, Breakout. And the entire book is about him trying to figure out how to get really good at Breakout. And it effectively is a book about breakout. Like there's a lot more kind of theory and a bit of phenomenology and stuff in there. But it's this really astoundingly good book about getting trying getting being obsessed and trying to be really good at the game breakout. I highly recommend it to anyone interested in games criticism just because it's like you know, it came out like twenty years before most people would say games criticism became a thing. These are the amazing tidbits that I live for. I had never heard of that. Every now and then, like, well, I only read it earlier this year because I was reading one of his other books called Way of a Hand, and it's about learning to become a jazz musician. And he's talking all about, you know, the way his hands learn the knowledge of how to be in the right space and that. And I was like, hey, this will be really relevant to video games. And I started writing an academic article using his work, you know, talking about video game controllers and stuff. And then I found out he'd written a whole other book about video games while I'm just sitting here referencing his music book like an idiot. And yeah, and it's both books are I think are super relevant to I think games criticism just think about how hands work really. But um Pilgrim of a Microworld is just a fant- a really great read. And yeah, and it's just so much more mature and high fidelity than I don't know, a lot of the writing we're doing now, I think. Yeah, but back to the earlier idea but before Killing is Harmless you hadn't read this book, you had like no roadmap on no. how to create a book, no template to either follow or reject. Yeah, absolutely. And not to say that you were like a primary, you are like a huge influence because that may be overselling it, but you still were the first person to dig that stake into the ground and everything is in one way a response or rejection of it. Yeah, like it feels like a very strange thing to try to admit without my head growing really large. But um, like, I guess like I kind of did that and it, if nothing else, I showed you could do it, and that you could even make money from these things and sell it yourself as an ebook. 
like I feel like, and I don't think I was the only person on the entire internet to do this, but I think there was kind of a, around the same around 2012-ish, like a lot of people realizing the same way people have realized in music and film, and that is that if you want people to read books digitally, don't bog it down with a whole lot of terrible e-readers and stuff. Just let people buy the PDF for a few bucks and they'll do it. Especially now that so many people have tablets of one kind or another as well. Like people are increasingly willing to read on a screen. So I think that certainly helped me as well. I was doing it at the time. I was doing it at a time where people were willing to read ebooks. And so I didn't need to go through a whole publisher or anything to do that. And I, I don't know. I'm excited about how many different books have been written since then, like all the boss fight book ones. And, um, you know, there's been a few independent ones like Alan Williamson's one on unreal. You know, I know other people are working on other ones, but yeah, about the same time you were working on yours, Daniel Johnson was getting his on Wario land four together and Bob Chipman was planning out his one on Super Mario World 3. Yeah. And who's that guy? Some guy wrote one on Bioshock. What's it? And I forget his name. Uh, I don't think... I think he's still writing it, because I haven't heard any of it being released yet. Right. But that, that's happening as well. Like, I don't know. It kind of... I guess I was like, hey, you can do this, and people are doing it. And But yeah, like, Daniel Johnson was, has been, was working on his Warrior one for a very long time. I think he was working on that before I was I started Killing His Heartless. But I think Daniel kind of runs in different circles and a lot of, I guess, the kind of, I don't know, I guess the critical distance branch of blogospheres, whatever. I can't think of any good word for that. But he kind of runs in different circles and he wasn't super vocal about the fact he was working on it. And of course, he ended up publishing it with Daniel Purvis's Stolen Projects publisher as well. And I don't think there could be any book about a video game more different than Killing is Harmless than that book. Um, it's a it's it's, enormous. It is. And it's, it's a fundamentally different methodology of approaching a game. It's a book that I'm excited it exists. Like, you know, I don't, I, I never want to be one of those people who's like, this is how you analyze a video game. Like, I, I never want to do that. And it's something I try to stress in Killing is Harmless that this is not the only way to write about a video game. There are so many ways and you'll find out different things from each of them. And, Daniel's kind of taxonomy, kind of post-mortem of a, every single element of that game, which is just obscenely, I would say, unnecessarily detailed, is like is certainly a very different way to do it. I tried. Re- I'll, I'll confess, like I couldn't read the whole thing. Like it kind of felt like trying to read a dictionary. In that, he'd just taken every single element and just explained every single one of those. And I'm like, this is this is good analysis, but it's not. But like I don't know. I feel like games criticism should be in and of itself, something that's good, that's interesting to read, regardless of anything else. That should be its first priority, is to be a good piece of writing. And, and I think Daniel was more interested in, I guess, archiving, and just being like, this is every element of this game, which is fine, and I think it serves a really important purpose. But it's not something I think I enjoy reading. But you still have, like, two of the most vastly different types of criticism under the same publisher. What was the story with Stolen Project? Because you needed a way to get Killing is Harmless out there. Yeah, well, Stolen Project was just Daniel Purvis's kind of his own project. He was trying, trying to get off the ground as a designer, an artist. You know, Daniel Purvis has a lot, there's too many Daniels in games in Australia. Like, there are so many of them. Um, but yeah, I'll just use last names. Purvis was, you know, he'd, be, he'd already started Stolen Projects. I think he'd released one book with him already. This kind of glitch art book called Alphabet, I think it was called. So he'd, he'd just been trying to get that off the ground. And when I originally went to him, it was because I wanted someone to do artwork and someone to format it as an ebook, and I had no idea how to do those things. And then he offered to publish it as a stolen projects book. 
which is just essentially a nice way to not just have a self-published book, right? It means it's actually got a publisher, which, you know, if nothing else, cynically looks good on my academic CV is to have a book published with an actual publisher rather than just a self-published PDF. But it's really just like, so I've known Daniel Purvis through, you know, he's illustrated for my stuff when I've written at Kill Screen of the Past and just, you know, the Australian gunner game scene is pretty small and tight knit, so I just knew Daniel. So we just started we just started talking. He needed more books so that his publisher kind of had a better catalogue. I needed someone to work on it, so we sorted out some details and the rest was history. And as for Daniel Johnson, he would have like Daniel Johnson and Daniel Purvis both live in Adelaide, which is not a very big city and I think they've known each other for ages. So I think, you know, I got published with Purvis, so Johnson went to him as well and was like, hey, here's an idea. What about the title and the cover art to go from, like, the most grand scope of things to the most nitpicking details? Yeah. It, it doesn't, it's not, it looks nothing from the game. It's very abstract to to what it, it's about. Yeah. That, that's Purvis's work, if I'm correct. It right? is Purvis's work. I really, really like, love the art he does around video games. Like, it's often... You know, you can often tell what video game it's from, but it's very abstracted from the video game in a lot of ways. And like VR he does for Dan Golding's monthly column in Hyper Magazine here in Australia is phenomenal. I think a lot of it's on his website. I'll try to find the link. But yeah, so he roughly prototyped like 10 different possible covers. I can't even remember most of them now. Some was like, you know, pixels turning into blood and stuff like that. But I think the theme he was, we were trying to go for was essentially that weird way games bleed into real life because that was kind of one of the themes i found interesting about it It was like you know you're not killing in real life when you're killing the game but you are pulling a trigger on a video game controller to shoot what looks like a human being which was something and i thought the game blurred reality virtuality in a really interesting way and i think i'm sorry i write about that in the book too much so that's kind of what the monitor is kind of going for with the visceral kind of guts and whatever kind of leaking out of a TV screen, this kind of, you know, the, the fourth wall of a video game is essentially the television screen that kind of separates the actual world from the virtual world, like some kind of aquarium glass wall. And in Spec Ops, that kind of broke a bit and it all just started kind of oozing out. So that's kind of, I think, what we're going for there. And the rest is just kind of, I guess, the color palette of, you know, the desert, Dubai. You can see the pillar in the background of... um a pillar of a tower that you end up going to at the end of the game. So you kind of got that nice kind of spatial perspective, same journey as you go through through the game in it. I know. I really like it. I think it did a really great job. You're not going to confuse it for any other book cover anytime soon, that's for sure. No. And it's just like, it's not um, just like, you know, it's not just a screenshot. It's not just Walker looking sad or something, which I think for most people would kind of be the default to just take a screenshot of a game. But I think it just, it makes it feel like a much more like an actual book and not just I dumped a PDF on the internet because, you know, an artist went to the trouble of creating some really great artwork for it. And the title? The title's from... It's a um, paraphrased version of one of those loading screen tips you get towards the end of a game when reality all starts to break down and some of the loading screen tips say things like, you know, you're a monster or whatever they say. And one of them is... Um, I'm going to mess it up, but it's something like killing for your government is heroic, killing for pleasure is something no killing for your government is heroic killing for something else is something else killing for entertainment is harmless now this is really kind of great loading screen message like killing's okay when you're doing it for your government and you know nobody gets hurt when you kill for entertainment 
And I just felt like it kind of perfectly captured that paradox of, you know, the, the entire game's conflict with itself, where it's like, it's like, yes, you're killing people, but it doesn't matter. But you, it's still killing, like, killing is still kind of messed up, even if you're not hurting anyone. And, but, like, killing for entertainment is harmless was a pretty terrible book title. So I just cut out the middle part and just thought killing is harmless was just a kind of nice, nonsensical, contradictory title that matched the game quite well. It's lovely how you answer my follow-up questions before I ever ask them. <laughs> I clearly just talk too much. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. It just makes my job a little harder. <laughs> yeah, I'm like looking at all these questions I had for like the conclusions. You've an- you answered them already when I asked you other questions. Because uh-huh. I, I was about to. Because my last question is, where do you see the development of this ty- of this type of criticism going? You've already said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess I can still kind of answer that. Like, I still definitely see it going in a whole lot of interesting ways. Like, like so many of the different books coming out are written in so many different fascinating ways. Like, you know, Daniel Johnson's book, while I don't find it exciting to read, I find it exciting that it exists. Like, you know, let's say 50 years from now when the last copy of Warrior Land has just, like, melted or whatever, you could pick up that book and you can read for it and go, all right, I understand how this game works. And I did... You could probably recreate it. Yeah, you could. And I, like, as a historical archival artifact it's much more useful than the way killing is harmless might be for spec ops like or maybe a different way of useful and i went and played that warrior land on wii u and like and i felt like i did understand that game or appreciated that game more having read that book so it certainly worked and then books like anaanthropy's zut because it's not pronounced zzt it's meant to be zut is remark like i've never played that game i don't think i ever will play that game but i really feel like I, i understand it well from reading that book. And I feel like I understand a particular moment in video game history from the late nineties that I never would have known otherwise. So I think it's like this super important, again, historical artifact that exists. All the boss fight books are different with a different critical approach. Yeah. Which is excellent. Um, like I'm, I'm just really excited to see that diversity. And like, I keep thinking about what would I write my next book about? Cause I'm sure I'm going to, I just haven't yet. And like, I haven't of- found the right game. Yeah, well, I, th- I think there's plenty of games I could, but all of them are, like, third-person cover shooters, and it just seems... <laughs> and, like, it would be the same book as Spec Ops, as Killing is Harmless, just with different content, and that just seems not that interesting. Like, But, I don't know, I, I think I would like to write about Driver San Francisco, just since... Well, I think you wanted to write a book about Driver San Francisco. <laughs> I no, it's just like, yeah, you beat me to it, damn it. Um, well, I haven't written it yet, so... <laughs> And also, I don't like. I don't want like. I would never want one person writing a book about a game to be to stop any other books about that game being written. Like, like I don't like the idea that killing is harm. Like, I see people call killing is harmless for final word on Spec Ops just because it's longer than any essay that was written about it. I don't think its authority should be any greater just because there's more of it. Like. Yeah, I don't know. I would like multiple I, books about that game. On the one hand, I understand that assessment. You don't want to like to be glorified with this crown when you feel like it was more of an exploration of trying to figure it out. Yeah. But at the same time, I do think that just because it is longer and how much more material it manages to cover and work with, that there is, that it is somehow above many of the other essays. So maybe not definitive, but definitely the most, I don't know, detailed. Yeah. Yeah. Most comprehensive maybe. Yeah, absolutely. And I did try to like constantly reference all those other articles, I guess, just to try to 
maybe futilely just like stay in conversation with them and not just swamp them out. But um, I don't know. Yes, we got a nice critical compilation out of you for that. Thank you. You did. Yes. Um, I was happy to contribute that. Um, but going back, sorry, like, you know, if I wrote about Driver San Francisco, I keep thinking, like, how would I even write about that? Like, as an open world game, I couldn't just kind of do the stepping through it like I could with Spec Ops. It would have to be a totally different approach. Like, Oh, no, I, I've I've had the same thoughts. Yeah, like, I keep thinking, like, maybe a collection of essays or around different themes or... I don't know. But, like, there is something really interesting there, a lot like Spec Ops, and the way the narrative progresses over time or the way the reality slowly breaks down in that game. So I'm not sure if a collection of essays would really capture that. So it's, it's an interesting puzzle. And so, yeah, I am really interested to see whether form of writing about book, writing about games long form goes, because there are so many ways it could go. See if someone gives the kernel of an idea on how to tackle that problem. Yeah. I just said yes, yeah, sorry, but I totally missed that question. <laughs> see if so- someone else writing a book comes up with some concept or way on how to tackle the open world problem yeah like i don't think any of boss fight books ones are open world yet are they they're all uh the closest would be season two's Baldur's gate 2 maybe yeah but yeah pretty much everything is like a either like a creation tool or a straight game yeah and they certainly lend themselves better to that kind of writing like yeah so i'd really like to see what a book about an open world game will look like i'm not sure what it would but one day we'll see it hopefully from one of us or someone else I think you've drained me of questions. Great. You know, this has been wonderful been talking to you, but I can't let you go without asking one generally pointless but often revealing question. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite game of all time? Not what you think is the best. What is your favorite? Uh, I find the only way to, like, answer these kind of questions is to have, like, a really kind of confident game that you're really into. The way I answer, like, my favorite song is, like, Santa Monica by Everclear, even though there's so many better songs. Anyway, but my favorite game would probably be, I think I have to say Grand Theft Auto 4. Like, I still thoroughly enjoy that game and have played it from start to finish so many times. So, yeah, if I had to choose a game as my favorite game, it would probably have to be Grand Theft Auto 4. Do you want a reason? Yes. Yeah? Uh, I guess, okay. So Grand Theft Auto 4 for me is just, like, and, and Grand Theft Auto 5 totally destroyed this as well. Like, it was so contained and so kind of restrained as well like the way you know you look at the previous grand theft autos from like free to vice city to san andreas and they just get louder and bigger and more bombastic and then four comes along and it's like throws away the jetpacks throws away the i don't know aliens or burning down weed fields or whatever it takes away like the massive open world of free cities and just has this really tight little city but amazing of a rage engine that gives you like that real kind of meaty feel to the world. The world just felt really good. And I just like, I think that game captured a kind of like everyday life-ness of Nico Bellic's life in a really fascinating way that if you're willing to play along with it and not play it like just another Grand Theft Auto and you just kind of enacted Nico Bellic's life, it just kind of, I found it pay, pays off in such a satisfying way. I think what I most love about the game is just kind of a payoff at the end. And I'm going to spoil it, but it's old enough, so whatever. But, like, you know, you, you make a decision at the end and somebody you love dies. So you play for the game again, you get to the end, and you make a different decision, and somebody else you love dies. So, like, there's no decision you make that ends up with Nico Bellic dying. It just somebody really close to him will die. And there's this kind of lovely tragedy to it. So then it has that moment after the credits or whatever 
that every open world game has, what every Grand Theft Auto has, where the character gets out of bed and it's just like the end game where you just collect all the secret objects or whatever you haven't got yet. And Nico Bellic kind of gets out of bed and like, you know, laments the person who died who he loves. And it just kind of is this amazing, like powerful moment of like, you made all these terrible decisions in your life. Somebody you love died and you're still here. Like he's just like trapped in Liberty City and he's never going to leave. And it just felt like this really powerful moment that like, just working within the kind of vocabulary Grand Theft Auto has always had. And asking me about Grand Theft Auto 4 as your final question is dangerous because I could talk about that game forever. (laughs) Like, it's not perfect. Like, it still has too much of that juvenile humor and stuff. And then, like, Grand Theft Auto 5 just goes off the rails and just, like, does a U-turn and goes back to, like, San Andreas kind of style absurdity instead of toning it down even more, which I was really hoping they would. But... Four is just this really nice sweet spot of just Rockstar just kind of being confident this is what we want to do, not necessarily what you want. So screw you, this is what we're going to do. And I like that. All right, before you go too far into Grand Theft Auto territory, (laughs) (laughs) I think we'll cut it up there, unless you can think on any parting thoughts about the book and your role in it. Um, No, I think I've spoken about my book for quite a while. I don't think I have anything else to add. (laughs) Actually, one last question. Do you feel that there was a difference in your appraisal or esteem of Spec Ops The Line after you finished writing the book as opposed to before? I don't know. I felt like I went from... I think like the first time I played it, I was like, that was pretty special. So I played it again like the next day, and I'm like, kind of felt like I understood a bit better. I, I guess by the time I finished the book, I was just kind of afraid that I was like reading way too much into it. So I was trying to be a bit more... I probably tried to be a bit more cynical of it. I guess immediately after the book came out, I probably like, and I wanted to be quite open to criticism. So I probably read a lot of the negative reviews and was like, you know, like, all right, they, have, they all have good points. This game isn't that great. But then I went and played it again, I think, and I like reaffirmed that it is actually pretty excellent. And like talking to Walt Williams about it and things that people said I'd read too much into and Walt going, no, that's exactly what it was, kind of was um, satisfying as well. So I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's really changed that much. It's just probably given me the words to understand that initial gut reaction I had that this was a pretty special game. It helped me unpack why I enjoyed it, like writing the book. Thank you for your time and appearing on the, on the podcast with me. No worries. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Yes.